G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you doing today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you again. As always. Now, I'm excited to be chatting to you today, which is a bit of a part two on last week's topic, which was about synchronicity. So today we've called the episode Positive Psychology, Science and Synchronicity. So, Dad, what are we going to be talking about today? Well, first of all, thank you for indulging me in a second episode of Synchronicity, Rowan, my favourite topic, as you well know. But one thing I really appreciate about this chance to go through things further today is a little bit of a deeper dive into some of the concepts or understanding or rationales behind drawing on synchronicity and relating it to science, including positive psychology as science of well-being. Well, it's interesting looking at that link between synchronicity and well-being in that sense, because I suppose we've had two editions of your book that have come out now, but the second edition had a bit more of a focus even on that well-being aspect of synchronicity. So does that suggest that as time's gone on, you've even understood there to be a little bit more of a link than you'd initially realised there was between well-being and synchronicity? Well, I suppose I subjectively experienced that benefit for well-being all along, and in some ways that might not have changed, but I'm a little bit clearer on how you can maybe account for that link or explain that link or what concepts you can use to describe that link. I'm a little bit more clear on that, and that's where calling the second edition of the book The Positive Psychology of Synchronicity, I was more confident of being able to explain it in terms that relate to that broad area. And I'm interested to talk to you and expand on some of these themes a little bit today, but it seems to me with that emphasis on positive psychology and well-being that it really does emphasise the utility that there is to synchronicity. And I believe that particularly comes up in some of the stories and we're going to be talking about some of those today. Yes, and I think that there are a range of ways in which synchronicity has some practical utility. And we talked last time about how it can be a bit like a tick from the universe that you're on the right track. So it can be affirming and energising in certain ways. But also it relates to things like precognition or psychic phenomena in certain ways and I think that there are certain abilities that people potentially can have that say shamans had in every culture known to humans from the dawn of time basically or certainly in terms of human occupation of the planet there has been this notion that people might have some kind of psychic abilities that might have some kind of healing quality and I actually think that there's truth in that that can be too readily dismissed. Well, I think it's interesting when you start looking into some of the reasons why some of this stuff gets readily dismissed, because we spoke a little bit last week on the podcast about the idea of confirmation bias, but I suppose it can also work in the opposite way, in the sense that, you know, I'll put my hand up and say that I'm someone who's probably naturally sceptical to the idea of ghosts and psychics in the Hollywood sense that we know it to be. But having spoken to you about some of this stuff, you recognise that, Maybe there's a little bit more to it than just the exaggerated version that we see, for example, in movies and TV shows. So, Dad, do you have any examples maybe of how, for example, some of this stuff comes up in such an uncanny way that it's almost just so incredible that it can't be dismissed so readily? Yes, I think that's a good point because I think it's right to start off sceptical, to be sceptical and questioning of something which sounds weird and that we don't have a ready rational explanation for, often things that we can't explain in a rational way aren't likely to be true and we can be superstitious or just look for what we want to believe. But I'll mention a few examples that stand out to me and two of them will come back to, again, referring to Ross, my mentor, who has just such amazing stories that I've included a whole chapter of his stories in my book. But one of them relates to the notion of precognition. And it's to do with this. Ross needed a document signed and he needed it signed by his aunt. And he was trying to contact her for a couple of days and she was not answering her phone. This was a number of years ago. So he thought he needed to drive up to Melbourne. She lived in a bayside suburb. I think it might have been Bo Morris. He needed to drive to Melbourne and he thought he was going to try his luck of running into her. Well, as... Ross was driving along St Kilda Road past the shrine in Melbourne. He suddenly got this thought, turn left here. 
he drove on about a kilometre and he saw his aunt parked on the other side of the road. He took the documents that needed signing, walked across to his aunt. She looked up shocked, saying, what are you doing here? And he said, I need these documents signed. I've come to meet with you. And she said, but I never come here. How did you find me? And again, it's not a place that Ross would frequent himself. That is just so uncanny that how do we explain that? And we usually use the expression in science using Occam's razor, using minimal inference to account for a situation. So a minimal inference would be, well, it was just a fluke. Sometimes people might find themselves in different situations and Ross had a random thought and that time it happened to be true. But I can't help but think, well, how gullible would I really have to be to believe that was just a fluke? It's just so unlikely, the timing that he picked and all the rest of it, that I think that's an example that we have to think that there's some other kind of consciousness that can guide us, some form of precognition to help account for the phenomena. So we can't just say, oh yes, it was a fluke and expect to believe that. Like, what are the chances? I just can't help but think there that there's something else that's going on, some other mechanism. And I think the thing about that story as well is that from other times that you've told me too is that he really needed that document signed without sort of going into it too much but that presented a major obstacle in his life at that time and you'd think, hey, such an unlikely occurrence but it wasn't just the unlikely occurrence, it was the unlikely occurrence that basically allowed him to progress through something that he had no other chance of doing. Exactly, that's the thing, it was so fortuitous. And that's why I call it supra-rational thinking. We can't explain it in terms of rational thinking. It's a more intuitive thought process, but it's not irrational or less than rational. I think it worked so well, it was beyond rational. He would not have been able to achieve that goal, meeting his aunt, by any rational means, finding her in that spot. It's interesting talking about that supra-rational thinking. It leads me to think of Aaron Rolston, who was the hiker who they made that movie 127 hours after. And basically he was hiking in America and was hiking through a gorge and a boulder came down and crushed his arm. And he was stuck there for, well, 127 hours. But the way that he was able to get out of that situation was he had a vision And in that vision, he saw himself with no left arm or the arm that was under the boulder at the time, and he was there with his partner and his daughter. And he didn't have a daughter at the time, so he knew that there was something within that that he thought, oh gosh, I have to get back to my partner without my arm to then be able to, I suppose, bring our daughter into the life and fulfil this vision in many ways. And I suppose what that leads me to think is that in that situation, if you're stuck with your arm under a boulder, well, trying to rationalise your way out of that situation is not going to get you very far. It almost calls upon this, I suppose, extra level of thinking, which is just an absolute shot in the dark in terms of the logic of it in many ways. But I suppose there are examples where this type of thinking does provide utility and it is able to get people out of a really sticky situation that potentially rationality would not be able to do in the same way. Yes, it seems to me it's tapping into a kind of deep intuition, a different way of knowing or gaining information or perceiving the world. And I'll give another example of that again from Ross because this is where it gets really spooky. I think this is the spookiest example. When Ross was 11 years of age, he was sailing from London on a ship, the P&O Himalaya. And on this ship, he recognised a lady who was walking around the deck, arm in arm with another fellow, and she wore a black checked skirt. And Ross was struck by seeing this couple in some way. Well, move on about 40 years or so. Ross was at a dinner party with a number of friends, the other side of the world, in Australia. And he sees a lady stretching her legs out before a fire. And he thinks, I've seen those legs before. And he recognises the lady who was walking around the deck. So he asks her, were you on a sailing on the Himalaya from London in 1950? She said, yes, indeed, I was. How did you know that? He said, I recognised you by your legs. You were walking around the deck with a doctor in a black and white check skirt. She said, Well, yes, that was my favourite skirt. I wore it a lot at that time. And, oh, but how did you know it was a doctor? Ross said, 
I don't know. I just knew. And you got off in Colombo? She said, yes, we did. And she was struck by how good his memory was. And then he said, wasn't it amazing how after that particularly chill winter, there was ice on the rigging as the ship was sailing off? That really struck me. She said, wait a minute. What sailing were you on? He said, I left on the 6th of December. She said, I left six months earlier. And she added, yes, I married that man who happened to be a doctor and we didn't end up together. And she said, I felt I left my soul on that ship. Now, to me, that's somewhat mind-blowing. How do we account for that in any rational sense? Can we just say that Ross had a thought bubble, that he thought that... This person looked a bit like that person he saw many years ago and somehow gathered they were a doctor and somehow got it mixed up or whatever. They hadn't met each other before this particular time, beyond the time on the ship. It just seems amazing and it leads me to wonder more about the notion of space and time and how we understand it. It sounds very spooky. It sounds a bit quantum physics to me how that could possibly happen. But I don't see how it can easily explain that by chance. And I think if anyone says, oh, that was just a muddled thinking and they both mistakenly thought that they had these details, I just think you'd have to be really gullible to believe that and just dismiss that. I think that would be a disconfirmation bias. Well, that is an incredible story. And it is interesting when you tell me Ross's stories, just the level of specificity down to whether it be the clothes that someone wears or just these minute details, which are just so unambiguous. It's not that sort of, I suppose, horoscope thing where you kind of put out a whole bunch of ambiguous terms and people read into what they will. Well, it seems from many of the stories that you've told me that there is such a specificity and it's that specificity which is what provides the, I suppose, uncanniness for people. Yes, and uh, I tell other stories that Ross describes about how a clairvoyant predicted that he was going to get this particular job, that after a year he would be promoted and move from the fourth to the fifth floor, that he'd live three miles from work, travel to work in a vehicle on public transport that was not a train or a bus. It happened to be a tram. All these things were true. Again, with this unusual specificity. So it can lead us to think, well, is it just though that some people have this potential? Is it just that very few people have this accurate, maybe psychic potential and most people can't tap into that? I can't help but think it's actually a little bit more potentially accessible to that. And one way we got at that is for three years running, I was involved in a radio show at Bay FM, uh, Talking Synchronicity, where we invited people from the general public in Geelong to ring up and tell their synchronicity stories. And here's just one example. A lady was walking past a public phone box outside a supermarket. She's walking with a friend and then the phone suddenly rang and she said to the person she was with, oh, that'll be for me, kind of like a joke it would seem. She goes over, picks up the phone, starts chatting to the person at the other end. Then the person that she was with said, what happened then? You seem to be talking to someone like you knew them. And she said, Yes, it turned out I was my best friend. Now, how would that happen? I think that's the term that William James used of noetic. Sometimes we can have knowledge without explaining how we could have that knowledge. There's something which is like a, an intuitive thought with Ross that was saying, turn left here at the shrine when he found his aunt. This is an example of someone getting the impulse to just pick up the phone thinking it'll be someone that they know. Now, these things are just so remarkable and there are endless stories about these things. Even Carl Jung in his autobiography, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, has hundreds of remarkable examples, many of them of this kind of order. And I just think, how can we dismiss all of those things as just sheer flukes? So not just in terms of my own experience, but so much of what I hear from other people's experience, there can be this noetic quality, some kind of precognition, and at times that can have a practical utility, like Ross finding his art when he really needed to, as you were suggesting. So how then can we use synchronicity to influence our thinking in that sense? Because is it just a matter of waiting until a story like this that comes around that is, I suppose, incredible luck in some ways, or it is an incredible coincidence? Is it just a matter of waiting until one of those examples pops up for us? 
Well, from my experience, it's not about trying to force synchronicity to happen, but being open to it. And sometimes it seems particularly relevant in our lives. And I think this especially tends to happen at times when, as Bernie Beitman, the psychiatrist, describes, it's when there are times of transition, need, and high emotion. So sometimes we'll be more primed, I think, to experience synchronicity when we're open to it. So, look, I might use a couple of examples that also illustrate how synchronicity can shape our thinking in a very helpful way because when it boils down to it, in writing about synchronicity and exploring it further, it's actually synchronicity that guided me to write about and have that focus on synchronicity as a key part of my more specialised work. And the first example I'll give is when I'd been working in Geelong for 25 years and I wanted to mark in some way having worked for a quarter century as a psychologist. And the thought popped into my mind that what I would like to do was to give a public talk, a free public talk, and in one hour I would try and summarise the most useful things, the most important and useful things I'd learnt from working 25 years as a psychologist. And I decided to spend 10 minutes of the hour talking about Carl Jung and synchronicity, and I would spend 20 minutes talking about Martin Seligman and positive psychology because I thought that was a new area that had just come up shortly before 2005, but I also thought it was an area that people were still going to be talking about in about 100 years' time. And there's little that I came across that I thought could have that profound impact. Well, anyway, so I duly gave that talk, and I was stunned to hear the next year that Martin Seligman, the founder of Positive Psychology, Professor of Psychology from Pennsylvania in the United States, was bringing his team to Geelong. He was coming with his team to Geelong. They would be here for two years. He would live in Geelong for six months himself to oversee a program of introducing positive psychology organisation-wide, the first international project of introducing positive psychology right through a whole organisation. And he decided to base this at Geelong Grammar for different reasons, partly because it was quite a contained community and you could influence the culture in a certain kind of way and gauge and measure it and have some control over it, if you like, doing it in a more contained environment. And he was also looking at an educational setting at that time. Now, to me, that was just mind-blowing. It was no more likely that Seligman would come to Geelong than, say, Paul McCartney come to Geelong to teach music. It was that unlikely. And the fact that this juxtaposition of synchronicity and Martin Seligman coming to Geelong, that as much as anything else led me to decide I would focus very much on positive psychology for the rest of my career. And so it's not that that's an irrational choice. There are rational reasons why I might do that as well. Clearly, I thought it was a worthwhile field. But it was the numinous quality, it was the uncanny quality of the combination of those things that led me to think that's the right thing for me to do. That's the path that I might best follow. And so I have followed that in certain ways. But it also turned out that in looking at synchronicity, I knew that I was wanting to develop the understanding of it and being able to explain it a little bit further, even in rational terms or make sense of it. So use concepts, because as a psychologist, I really believe in rationales. And this is where a second example of synchronicity came in, and it was around the symbol psi. So the Greek letter psi is like a trident, the shape of a trident, and that's the symbol for psychology, where a number of psychology practices will have that somewhere in their logo or their branding, which actually is part of the branding of this podcast. But I was also wanting to relate psychology to psychic phenomena, as in synchronicity and precognition, with quantum physics, which we'll talk about shortly further, and shamanism. So historical intuitive healing methods that I thought had some truth in them. So I'm looking to link these four different areas and I came across the symbol psi in uncanny ways that linked them together across a one or two day period when I was writing about synchronicity in the United States. I was in San Francisco and I was staying in the Mystic Hotel for a week between conferences. I actually chose the Mystic Hotel because I thought that would be a good place to write about synchronicity and I was stunned when I got the door key of the hotel room and it was attached to a piece of wood which had the psi symbol on it. And then I thought, oh, of course, psi is also the symbol for psychic phenomena. 
Then when I was there, I think in the first day, we were revising our website and um, Sue, your mother, our practice manager, contacted me and said, look, I think it's best to write up something for our website on our philosophy. And I thought, okay, well, I'll write something on that. I'll take a break from writing about synchronicity. And, well, we have Psy in our logo, so I'll explain a little bit about that. And so I looked up Psy on Wikipedia. And I was stunned to find that Psy relates to a particular phenomenon in quantum physics related to what's called a collapse of the wave function. Now, I never knew that before, that the psi symbol could also relate to quantum physics, this other area I was trying to relate to, psychology and psychic phenomena. But then added to that, the next day was actually Independence Day. I decided to take the day off from writing and I travelled around San Francisco and I came across a beat museum, which I found fascinating. And so I spent some time there and learnt that they were somewhat into mystical phenomena, interested in William Blake and all the rest of it. But then I learnt that there was an Allen Ginsberg exhibition elsewhere at the Jewish Contemporary Museum. So I thought I'll follow up there. And I did follow up there and I learnt that there was another art exhibition next to the Ginsberg one called Beyond Belief about spiritual art. I thought, oh, that's interesting. I'd like to go to that. And when I went there, I was stunned after a period of time to find a painting and I thought, that's what I came here to see. I followed my nose, experiencing lots of synchronicity around San Francisco. It led me to this Beyond Belief art exhibition and I was standing in front of a Jackson Pollock painting called Guardian of the Secret. And there are a lot of sacred shamanic symbols in a rectangle in the middle of this painting. And prominently... At a six o'clock position, down the bottom in the middle of this rectangle, was the symbol Psi. So it was a prominent shamanic symbol. Funnily enough, in the same six o'clock position as the Psi symbol is on our practice sculpture outside our main practice building at 42 Villamanta Street. And I thought, this is just amazingly uncanny. In the course of, say, 48 hours, when I'm trying to link mainstream psychology, psychic phenomena, quantum physics and shamanism, I came across the symbol psi in each of these other kind of areas. And I thought, that is so uncanny. That goes way beyond chance in in my view. And that led me to have an extra conviction that looking to relate these concepts to each other was a reasonable kind of thing to do. And I know that my character strengths include judgment and perspective. And I thought, well, okay, that's not just being woolly-headed or superstitious, that is just so uncanny, I would back that kind of belief. And that led me to explore more about quantum physics and shamanism and all the rest of it and develop the concepts further and relate them to synchronicity and science. So it was that kind of motivation, initially with Martin Seligman and the synchronicity of him coming to Geelong where I was able to meet his whole entourage and learn a lot about what they were on about and how they worked in even more depth and detail. But then this psi symbol coming up again and again and again, it was absolutely motivating and it was like a tick from the universe to me to keep on going in that conceptual direction and just one final anecdote I'll mention about that and you were with me Rowan when had the book launch in London around this time last year and I remember giving a talk for about 20 minutes and being disappointed that I didn't get to mention the psi symbol I thought the psi is missing well anyway at the end of the talk there was a book signing And the first person who came up to me explained that her name was Shiva. And we had a little bit of a conversation about this, and I was interested in that because I knew it was also the name of an Indian god. And she said she was named Shiva for a different reason than that god, but she did feel some connection with that god because she had a symbol related to that god in the veins on the back of her hand. And she showed me the back of her hand and the veins made a very prominent trident shape, a psi symbol. So there I'd been thinking, oh, the psi was missing from that talk in London. And then she shows me the back of her hand, and then I think, there's the psi symbol. A feeling that all is right, so to speak. Keep on going. 
at an intuitive level, at a deep intuitive level, as well as a rational level, there are ways of linking these concepts. And I've found that as motivating as anything else in writing about synchronicity and exploring it further and relating it to science. Well, it's interesting hearing these stories that you're speaking about today. It seems to me that the common theme between them is almost that idea of paying respect to your intuition in terms of it's not as if we're just, you know, walking in mindless directions and expecting things to happen. It's almost that we are acting upon something that is there. And just because we can't explain it doesn't necessarily mean that it's illegitimate or that it doesn't exist. And I find it interesting, as you mentioned, science there. I think science even acknowledges itself some of the gaps that it has in this area. And I think of one of my favourite philosophers is a guy called Richard Rorty, who lived in the 20th century. And he was an atheist guy. He wasn't necessarily religious, but he was very spiritual. And he spoke about these things called super concepts. And a super concept, for example, is truth with a capital T, or reality with a capital R. And I find it interesting that in science, we test hypotheses and when we prove a hypothesis, it becomes a theory. It's not as if science purports to be this guide to reality with a capital R, or it's not as if science basically says that it's the way to truth with a capital T. Even the science that we do have to now suggests that It's a bit of a working model in some respects. We all the time are building upon and expanding upon scientific concepts that have existed in the past. Yes, and that's actually like individual psychology too and understanding our lives and a process of therapy. We reflect on our lives and we look to reflect on our lives in a realistic way, but our model or view of the world and of ourselves and what's important to us, it keeps on evolving and it keeps on developing. It's not like we've arrived at some kind of ultimate truth. But similarly with science, we get closer to the truth maybe in certain ways. We call it verisimilitude rather than absolute reality, absolute facts. As you say, we keep on developing our understanding and that's what I try and do with synchronicity. You keep on following your nose and there are also intuitive ways of adding to your knowledge. You get some free kicks along the way as well as looking to more rationally and logically develop the concepts that you're using. Well, I think it's interesting as well to look at some of the origins of synchronicity as well because Carl Jung, who coined the term synchronicity, he, for example, spoke with people such as Einstein and and Wolfgang Pauli, who was one of the pioneers of quantum physics. So the idea of synchronicity hasn't always been removed from a consistent understanding with science, has it? Yes, well, Jung started to develop his ideas about synchronicity based on some of the most advanced science of the day. As you described, he had contact with Einstein and that led Jung to think more about the notion of space and time and how that might be relative. But also he knew Pauli as a patient of his and actually Jung did not write about synchronicity until around about the 1950s and only at the instigation of Pauli. Pauli said to him, look, Carl Jung, I know you're really interested in synchronicity. Hey, to encourage you to write about it, I'll write a chapter in a monograph with you if you write about synchronicity. So it was one of the pioneers of quantum physics that got Jung to write about it because Jung knew it was a complicated thing to try and explain and that it might not be so popular with a number of scientists of the time, but that was the kind of pedigree of people who were supporting him to write about it. And it's interesting as well that it's not necessarily just a historical link as well because, for example, Pauli and Jung were both interested in the idea of a causal connection, weren't they? So, look, Dad, neither you and I, and I imagine many of our listeners are, are not quantum scientists, but how do Pauli and Jung's ideas relate in that sense? Because it's not necessarily that they were independent of each other, were they? Well, I think one of the main things is this. If we take some basic understanding from quantum physics, which is really hard to get your head around, but one of the basic things is all matter comes back to consciousness, Now, that's a spooky kind of idea, but if all matter is ultimately based on consciousness and it only becomes like substance, like a thing, once it's observed, which is a very strange idea to get our heads around, then the notion of consciousness interacting with matter 
or mind and matter interacting in strange ways becomes more possible. But then there's the principle of entanglement. And entanglement is the idea of non-local connection, or as you were describing, a causal connection. And the idea is like this, and this has been proved to be true from the 1960s onwards. Entanglement means that if you get, say, two electrons in contact with each other and then separate them by great distances, then if something happens to impact on the spin of, say, one electron, there'll be immediately a complementary reaction in the other electron. So they're like a pair. They're twinned in some kind of way. They're functioning as kind of like one system instantaneously. And you can have twinned molecules or twin crystals. Now, I don't know how they demonstrated this or proved it through their experiments, but they have multiple times. And this is what Einstein said couldn't be true. He said, there's no such thing as spooky action at a distance meaning the fastest that things can influence each other in any way is the speed of light, so there must be some time lag between something impacting on one and then the other. No, it's instantaneous. And from my point of view, if matter can be instantaneously connected at a distance, then why not people's minds? So you hear stories, for example, of someone hurts their knee and their identical twin sister across the other side of the world contacts them and says, look, has something happened to you? I've got this feeling of contacting you. And then they say, oh, yes, I just fell over and injured my knee. You hear many stories like this that seems that there is this spooky kind of connection. So that happens in matter. It's called entanglement. One of the strangest things in quantum physics, but that's helped develop telecommunications and different aspects of science. It's got its application. Well, I think it's also got its application in life through synchronicity. I think that Ross encountering his aunt has something to do with psychic entanglement. Well, it's interesting. I heard one time, again, I'm not exactly sure how it works, but your mobile phone could not work without the concept of quantum entanglement somehow. So certainly we have a a practical utility for it in modern day life. So it's, it's interesting to hear you explain it like that. But There was something that you sort of skipped over a little bit there, but it'd be really interesting to get into a little bit more in terms of that idea of all matter is consciousness, because it's something that it's not necessarily self-evident how that is true. So is it possible to describe a little bit more how that relates? How is it that all matter is consciousness? Okay, well, when it boils down to it, everything comes down to a certain kind of energy, something that's not made of stuff that you can't see. So I mentioned something earlier about collapsing the wave function. Basically what that means is there's no stuff there, there's no material there until we observe it. But once we observe it, say we measure it, then there is, for example, a molecule fixed at that place at that time. But until we observe something, There's what we call superposition. It could be here, it could be there, it could be somewhere else kind of thing. But once we observe something and measure it, that's where it is and it's not somewhere else. And I'll just mention that does have an application to psychology as well. Just say if we're in a particular kind of situation, we might see it as threatening, we might see it as exciting, we might see it as challenging, we might see it as confusing. There are all sorts of ways that we might perceive an ambiguous situation in front of us. But once we perceive it a certain way, that will then impact on our thoughts, our feelings, our brain chemistry, and we can't just unsee it that way. So life is ambiguous, but once we perceive something a certain way, that becomes our reality. Now, we know that kind of psychologically, but it's also got its parallel materially in material science. So it's strange to think that we actually can't measure things exactly as they are, and that's related to something called the uncertainty principle. So there's the uncertainty principle, there's superposition where things can be in any number of places, so to speak, with different levels of probability. It really gets mind-blowing, but I think it's the principle of entanglement that particularly shows a link with synchronicity. Actually, I'll just mention an aside on this. 
talking about quantum physics, I didn't include it with the first manuscript I wrote for the first edition. And then the editor said to me, look, you've mentioned about quantum physics and how synchronicity might have some potential meaningful or scientific or true basis. Well, you've got to back that up a bit with saying more about quantum physics. And I thought, oh, dear me, this is going to take me months of research, which it did. But when I finally, after researching many different books for months, trying to get my head around it, I'm starting to write for the first day. I'm sitting down to write a chapter on quantum physics. And I'm procrastinating. I get distracted. I see an email, leads me to another email. I follow up something else or something on Facebook, looked at something else. And then finally, I read this article that I normally wouldn't have read through, but I read it a bit further and I get to a quote by a famous physicist called Richard Feynman and it says, and remember this is the day I'm starting to write about quantum physics and the quote says, if you think you understand quantum physics, then you don't. I thought, fantastic, there's synchronicity again helping me write about synchronicity. Doesn't matter if it's so hard to get my head around this. Everyone finds it hard to get their head around this. So we partly talk in metaphors and things like that but the notion of entanglement is more than just a metaphor this is an actual physical process that exists and again if matter can be connected at a distance instantaneously in a spooky way then why not people's minds well i think it was schrodinger's cat was the famous experiment to talk about quantum entanglement wasn't it in terms of the cat was both simultaneously alive and dead until you open the box so i suppose it's similar in that sort of sense in terms of it's it's the particle is both here and there until you observe it. And then I suppose it gets even more complicated in terms of, I believe you look at the probability of its position rather than the position itself and all this sort of stuff. But it's very interesting to me that the more that you look into this sort of stuff, the more that a purely rational understanding of the world seems to fall away a little bit. And I find it very interesting that looking at some of the, I suppose, most prominent scientists throughout history, some of the people who you would potentially expect to have the most rational view of the world being involved in some of this sort of stuff, you look at people like Sir Francis Bacon, Sir Isaac Newton, even Einstein, as you are mentioning there, so many of them had such an interest in some sort of metaphysics, whether it be the alchemists back in the day. And there's much suggestion that alchemy and the study of alchemy was what laid the foundations of modern science, looking at things like chemistry and and physics and all this sort of stuff. So it's interesting that we've come to this point now where we almost see things like synchronicity and intuition to be a little bit irrational when for so long throughout human history there's not only been a link between some of this supra-rational stuff and science in many ways it's been a motivating factor to keep exploring science exactly and i think it's interesting that sometimes when we use logic to dispute anything that might seem spiritual or transpersonal we're often coming back to what's called a newtonian cartesian model And so that relates to the work of Descartes and Isaac Newton. Well, Isaac Newton, who clearly was so brilliant in coming up with ideas about gravity and all the rest of it, he actually wrote more about alchemy than he wrote about gravity. Actually, towards the end of his life, about the main thing that he regretted was not spending even more time on alchemy. He was fixated on it. And then with Descartes, you know, I think, therefore I am, one of his early proofs was the notion that God exists. So these great scientists whose models of thinking lead us to dispute or question anything that seems woo-woo or transpersonal, they were very immersed in transpersonal beliefs themselves and that applied to most of the pioneers of quantum physics. So Schrodinger described that he was so encouraged when they came across Vedanta scripts so this Indian spiritual philosophy, because these notions about everything coming back to consciousness that he'd hypothesised from his scientific work, it fitted in exactly with what they said in the Vedanta scripts. And he said, well, look, the fact that other people had written about things that they're finding in their experiments led them to have a little bit more confidence that they weren't just barking up the wrong tree. 
Then there was Heisenberg, who was well known for being a very kind of disciplined scientific researcher, very rigorous, as Pauli was as well. One time Heisenberg was talking with Fritjof Capra, a physicist of his day who wanted to highlight transpersonal notions. And Capra was just so thrilled to meet Heisenberg, an elderly man at that stage, when Heisenberg said to him, look, you and I, we're physicists of a different kind, meaning we have more interest in these transpersonal concepts. But then Heisenberg added, but sometimes you just have to howl with the wolves. In other words, he was saying, sometimes you have to conform to your group and not just say what you think or what you believe, because otherwise you might be discredited or on the outer, that kind of thing. So when we put together, like Pauli, Heisenberg, uh, Schrodinger, like many of these people had transpersonal kind of beliefs, even though they were the most rigorous scientists of their day. I actually think the reason why there's so much more interest in synchronicity now is we hit the 100-year mark after quantum physics was developed. That was around about 1913. And there are a ton of synchronicity books coming out now. There's been an explosion of them, and I think it's partly that century of that idea being there. And I'm thinking, hey, how come there were these concepts around for like 100 years before people really tried to pick up on them and look to use any kind of practical utility from them? Basically, these quantum physics ideas were taught in university along the lines of, oh, use the mathematics that comes from them. Oh, but don't believe them because they can't be true. Because it's just too weird. Well, that's a classic example of what I would call disconfirmation bias. And it's not just physical science either in terms of physics that synchronicity relates to as well. Like synchronicity relates to PERMA that we've spoken about on the podcast before too, doesn't it? Yes, and I think this is the key thing. Like as a psychologist, I'm really interested in things that impact on people's well-being. And so positive psychology being a science of well-being, I think we can understand synchronicity and its benefits in terms of the PERMA model that we've talked about a lot on this podcast before. So the idea of PERMA, there's anything that supports our positive affect, engagement, relationships, meaning or achievement then objectively can help our well-being. Well, I think that synchronicity ticks all of those boxes. So take the positive affect. Often it's an enlivening kind of experience. It can lead to a sense of awe or wonder, or sometimes it's just funny things that happen, like even the, the phone box incident I mentioned earlier. So there's the positive affect. Engagement. Well, I've used the examples, for example, of how it motivated me to follow through positive psychology, that link between Jung and Seligman. So that's as engaging, if you like. That kind of thing can lead to a burst of dopamine that can last for 10 years, that level of engagement that it can encourage. And also, with the numinous quality of it, it can add to our sense of meaning. And it can drive us further and motivate us further, so that can lead to achievement. And I think that because synchronicity often relates to connections, again, like Ross with his aunt, I think that's an example of how it can enhance relationships because we can feel more connected to those people that we have these kind of links with. Well, it's interesting if we just, for example, pick up on the M in meaning there, it leads me to think of the French term. I think the French have a term raison d'être which loosely translates to reason for being. But essentially it means the most important reason or purpose for someone or something's existence. And what that leads me to wonder there is, is your raison d'etre, is your reason for being something that's self-mediated or is it something that almost comes from outside of ourselves? Like we use this term a calling. Well, what is it exactly that's calling? And I wonder if, for example, with synchronicity, it's not a conscious decision that we make for something to be so profound to us. It's almost like something that's subconscious or something that's transcendent. And I wonder if synchronicity gives us a little hint in terms of when we use terms like tick from the universe or on the right track. Well, it seems to me that synchronicity provides a bit of a connection with this whether it be kind of transcendent calling or this transcendent mediator of meaning yes well this is a key question a deep question in terms of transpersonal beliefs is there something some kind of consciousness that exists beyond us because at one level we could say well that perma model works 
even if it's just purely subjective beliefs from within our own mind. If I believe that I've got this little wooden statue on a table and that's got magical qualities, then in a sense it might have magical qualities for me. It doesn't have to be objective, it can be purely subjective, or I might have some kind of weird rationale for why I might be going in one direction rather than another, but I've got a conviction in my own mind that that's what I should do. So there's the meaning that can motivate me, and we can say, okay, that's subjective experience could still lead to PERMA. But like many people, I believe that there's something a bit objective beyond that. And it gets back to the uncanniness, the unlikelihood of these things just coming up by chance. That's where I can't help but think that there's some kind of higher organising force in the universe that, for example, links the size shape with mainstream psychology, psychic phenomena, quantum physics, shamanism, so on. That leads me to think that there's some objective truth beyond that. I'll give you an example of how I'd follow that through. Because I have that compelling belief of that, then I think, well, there's going to be something objective in this symbol, the trident shape that relates to the human body. And I think, well, what kind of posture do we have which is like a trident shape? And I think, for example, of a priest in front of a congregation, legs straight, arms up, raised. That's a classic posture that links the earth and heaven, so to speak. So I think that's the message behind this. It has a kind of embodied message that each of these areas that have looked to link has some kind of way of looking to link the earth and heaven, so to speak, or the material and the transpersonal. I think that's the underlying link behind these things. And I think it's just beyond chance that these symbols relate to each other and even relate to the human body in that way. And I do relate that to Ken Pargament's research on sacred experience. Ken Pargament is a positive psychology researcher and he has a lot of examples of how when people do believe in a transpersonal dimension, they have spiritual beliefs. So they might experience their work as a calling or their relationship is meant to be and that's based on this uncanny, numinous kind of experience, then we know that can help well-being. It helps people be more resilient, manage stress better, get more enjoyment or satisfaction from their work or their relationship, that kind of thing. So we know that makes a demonstrable difference. But like many people, I believe something about that sacred experience relates to something, well, might not quite say objective, because you can't quite measure it in a usual way, but something that, if you like, exists. I have a compelling belief now that there's a transpersonal dimension that exists, or that there is a spiritual dimension to life, or there is a soul dimension. And that's where I think that if we're going to use terms like psychology that technically means study of the soul, or we use terms like psychiatry that technically means soul doctoring, we ought to be more open to looking for this soul dimension in life, or at least consider it, because when people do consider that there's a soul dimension in life, it has demonstrable benefits for their well-being. And this is one of the newly emerging areas of psychology. The biggest shift in psychology, I would say, in the last five years is much greater emphasis and openness to spirituality as potentially being a dimension that enhances our well-being. It's certainly coming up more in positive psychology language these days, including Martin Seligman now openly saying he's always felt that he's had a calling and positive psychology is a sacred mission. Well, it's interesting just how many cultures around the world have an example of this spiritual thinking, whether it be religious or otherwise, but it's something that's in some ways gone a little bit out of our society. And I think it's interesting to go back and look at, for example, the ancient Greeks who provide the origin for much of our, I suppose, rational framework for looking at things. And for example, if you look at Plato, now it's something that you've written a little bit about in the book, I believe, as well, is the idea of the rider on a week horse but would you like to expand on that idea a little bit for us just how the ancient Greeks for example spoke about this idea of the soul yes well one of the most amazing experiences I had writing the second edition was coming across some of Plato's ideas that absolutely struck me and particularly some of his ideas that related to a theme that I'm really on about the difference between psychosis and satori or how sometimes mental health professionals and others can't differentiate between if you like transpersonal experience legitimate experience and 
madness. Now, it turned out that Plato talked about some of this when he was talking about a transpersonal dimension in life, or I'll describe it that way. He talked about divine madness. And Plato in Phaedrus sought to separate out the difference between divine madness and common madness or mania. And he said that there are four different types of divine madness. One is religious rites, one related to the muses, which included both creative arts and science, one related to prophecy and love. Now, I'll come back to prophecy. What prophecy is, is it's like looking to the future in an uncanny way. Again, like the example of Ross meeting his aunt. Or it could be the person thinking that the phone call, that the public phone box was for them. I'd call that a kind of prophecy. Now, the thing that intrigues me is we can think of prophecy as a kind of uncanny prospection looking to the future. Now, I'm struck by how this ties in with the theme of also Martin Seligman, mentioned a number of times. So Martin Seligman, in his book The Hope Circuit, highlights that a key feature of human beings is anticipating the future, planning for the future. He says that humans could be called homo prospectus. And he's emphasising this quality of anticipating the future. Well, I think it's remarkable how in Plato highlighting prophecy as being a form of divine madness, meaning you can't explain it rationally, but it has a very positive quality, I now think of prophecy as a kind of uncanny prospection. And I think that synchronicity, like Ross and his aunt, is like an uncanny prospection, something that we hear from a number of indigenous cultures. If people looking to meet someone else that they haven't seen for a while and they set out on some kind of track, they haven't got a watch, they haven't got a calendar, and yet they meet that person. They haven't got a map, yet they meet that person in an uncanny way. I think that quality of uncanny prospection is a meaningful skill or capacity that a number of people have that we could develop further. And as we've focused on the rational, we might have missed some of that supra-rational quality that we can develop further. So one of the things that intrigues me is how Plato talked about this many years ago and how, well, nearly 2,000 years ago, and in how he was looking to differentiate the notion of madness and divine madness. In other words, seeing there as being something legitimate in the quality of prophecy. Well, I think as well, Plato seemed to have recognised as well that there maybe was this tension between rational thinking and supra-rational thinking and potentially even people in Plato's time displayed some of this disconfirmation bias that you were talking about because one of my favourite allegories from Plato is the allegory of the cave which talks about the idea that if we lived our life chained up in a cave and all we ever saw was 2D projections on the wall in front of us and someone was to escape that cave, go out and see that the world was in fact in 3D, go back to the cave, tell the people chained up, well, they would only ever have a concept of the 2D world that they'd seen projected in front of them. So according to Plato, the people in the cave would not believe that person who'd ventured out and experienced the world as it is sort of thing. So it seems to me that what Plato is trying to get at there is that potentially if we ignore some of this sort of stuff, if we look at the world with only a rational point of view, then we're simply looking at the 2D projection of the world that he spoke about. Yes, I think that's a really good analogy. And the way that I think of it and maybe experience it at times is I think of it a bit like if we're at a coral reef, a shallow coral reef, and we've got some goggles. And we're standing above the water and we look down and the water might look uh, bluish or whatever kind of colour, but we don't see much. But if you poke your head down to the water so the goggles go through the surface, suddenly you see this multicoloured world, this multicoloured, amazing, multidimensional world that before you wouldn't have realised existed. So to me, that's some of the numinous, almost magical quality, if you like, of some synchronistic kind of experiences. It's like it adds another colourful dimension to the world, that transpersonal dimension. And I like the analogy that also Plato gave to the soul. He referred to the soul as like a rider on a winged chariot. So like a rider on a winged horse, 
And I think that goes back to a story I mentioned last week about a fellow had this amazing synchronistic story about a psychic monk and riding a wooden rocking horse. And I talked about how Freud related the psyche to a rider on a horse. Now, I think that the difference between acknowledging a transpersonal dimension or not believing that that's legitimate is the difference between our psychological functioning being like a rider on a horse compared to also adding the soul dimension. Sometimes we can be like a rider on a winged horse. We can have, if you like, this supra-rational capacity. We can have these extra intuitive powers, if you like, which turbocharges our capacity in some way. It adds to our capacity for perspection. It allows us to have uncanny perspection such as many indigenous cultures would believe, such as many religious traditions would allude to, and also what I describe as the kind of psychic phenomena, the kind of precognition, if you like, or that capacity for uncanny perspective that I've mentioned. Well, it's interesting hearing you talk about that because I wonder to what degree we actually need a little bit of that sort of thinking in order to have progress because we spoke before about the idea of science, modern science coming out of alchemy and the pursuit of alchemy. Well, for example, you hear that notion, you can't be what you can't see. Well, to some degree, you'd think you'd need someone to almost break the mould in that respect. Otherwise, we'd simply be imitating everyone that we can see in front of us. It's almost like that we need to employ this almost transcendental thinking in a way, to be able to break free of the constraints that have been placed around other people, if that makes sense. Yeah, look, I think that's an important point. It's partly about thinking creatively. And part about thinking creatively is looking to join the dots in a different way. And if we look to be very rational and explain things according to what we already know, then we're going to keep on going over the same kind of thing. So there's something about creative thinking or being open to deep intuitive thinking, which is at least a bit disruptive to our usual thought process. It can lead us to make conceptual leaps. It can lead us to join the dots in different ways. And so when I describe how people can get like a thought pop in their head, such as, oh, this phone call at this phone box might be for me. If we act on that at times, sometimes it'll lead us in a different direction. And it's also led to discoveries through dreams. For example, I think you pronounce... Uh, the person's name, Kukule, who discovered the benzene molecule. They had a dream about a snake swallowing its tail and it led them to thinking and imagining the ring structure of the benzene molecule led to a discovery. Sometimes, and actually quite often, a number of scientific discoveries are made from some kind of quirky thinking. I happen to believe that sometimes these things seem to go beyond chance. It's as though there's something beyond us that can lead us in a certain kind of direction. It's not just a subjective whim that leads us to do something. There's some kind of consciousness, larger, higher-mindedness, organising force in the universe, if you like, beyond us. But I think that even if people don't necessarily believe that, just being open to the notion of deeper intuitive ways of relating to things can sometimes be helpful and help us think about things in a different creative way. Well, Dad, just to finish up, I I suppose I'll let everyone in on a a little cartoon that you sent me through the week, which I think relates well here. And it was a uh, a picture of a magician with a kid sitting next to him on a chair and the magician had his big top hat and his wand out and the caption said, For my next illusion, I shall convince young Stephen that he has control over the trajectory of his life. So I think that relates a little bit to what we're talking about today in the sense that Maybe life isn't necessarily just a case of putting one foot in front of the other and and things happen the way that we think that they're going to. There's maybe a little bit more magic to it in the sense of maybe there's something that we simply can't just rationalise or intellectualise away. Yes, and sometimes it would be nice to think we had that kind of control, wouldn't it? And uh, certainly uncertainty can be very stressful. We've faced a lot more uncertainty this year with COVID, so people are all too familiar with uncertainty. But it does remind me, that cartoon you mentioned, it reminds me of of an expression by Joseph Campbell, if the path before you is clear, it's probably someone else's. 
But again, something I like about synchronicity, if we take that notion of a tick from the universe, sometimes it can be affirming. So even though we don't exactly see the path ahead of us, it can give us that conviction that it's worth going in a certain direction, which for me included in my work deciding to pursue positive psychology and still incorporating ideas of synchronicity. That was the main motivating thing behind it. But I think also with synchronicity to me it adds to my grandmother's expression I've mentioned at other times life is like a jigsaw puzzle the longer you live the more you can see the jigsaw puzzle pieces fall into place and one thing I find quite affirming at times or helpful or energizing or motivating comforting even about synchronicity but mainly energizing and encouraging is that there's that feeling that Yes, I mightn't be able to see exactly where this is leading. However, I get the sense that I'm on a fitting kind of path for me, if you like, and that helps keep on going. Well, thanks for chatting with me today about all of this stuff, Dad. It's been great to talk to you about the subject of your book, which we will put a link up to on the podcast page for anyone who is interested in a a much more in-depth look into everything about synchronicity and its relation to positive psychology and well-being. So... Of course, we'll have the podcast page at chrismackey.com.au slash podcast that we'll put up with all the resources for today's episode, but we'll also pop on there a link to synchronicityunwrapped.com.au, which is Dad's book website, and Dad keeps that regularly updated with a whole range of blogs about synchronicity and other things uh, related to some of the stuff that we've been talking about today. So thanks again, Dad. It's always good to talk to you about some of this stuff, and I'll look forward to next week. Thanks very much, Ron. And as we say, be open to being open. Notice what you notice.